predestination to adoption and its relation to the three spheres of nature. According to our custom, however, we read together a portion of scripture before commencing this exposition and the portion to be read this evening is Galatians chapter 3 verse 15 to chapter 4 verse 7. Galatians chapter 3 15 to chapter 4 verse 7. Now perhaps those who are using this recording would like to share in that reading and I'm suggesting that they switch off, read the passage themselves, then switch on again for the exposition that will follow. First of all, let us notice this word predestinated. It occurs once or twice in other parts of the New Testament, but it has caused a good deal of heartburning and a great deal of misunderstanding, largely because it seems to present to the mind the word destiny. Now, strictly speaking, the word which is thus translated predestination has no idea of destiny in it. It is made up of two words, pro, which you, um, you already know, means beforehand, and horizo, which gives us the word horizon, and a horizontal line simply means the imaginary line that divides sea and sky. It simply means to mark off beforehand. That's all. And if we are dealing with the will of the Father, why, why should there be an uproar? Because God has marked off beforehand some who are to be legacies in his will. We don't usually make an uproar because somebody leaves a, a friend or leaves to us particularly a nice lump sum in his will. Has he not right to do that? Again, you see, this word destiny creeps into words which have no idea of fate unless we play with them something like this. I might say that my destination is Waterloo. Or I might say his destiny is to meet his Waterloo. But then that's a different meaning. So, one other thought before we pass on, as this is only introductory. You will discover that the word foreknowledge is used in the proximity of predestination. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. So foreknowledge comes before predestination. Now this is a something about which we can only read and which we do not understand. How God, from the beginning of time, could infallibly know what you and I would do as free agents, not one of us can understand. But it's put there. Peter says the same thing, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So I'm glad to leave it there. I'm glad to see that God has a mind of his own and makes his will clear, but that he's respected the work of his hands and he doesn't invade the little bit of freedom that he's given me in making my choice. I never use the word free will. I think that's a mistake. Because I might stand here and say I will and nothing will happen. But I have, by the grace of God, given to me freedom of choice. I can choose, though you bind me hand and foot, I can choose to be bound hand and foot. And that's as far as we go. But our subject is so big 
that I want to move on to the next word. And a good many of us have already rejoiced in the truth which is deposited in this word translated adoption. You will find in the passage which we read just now together uh, that it is translated adoption of sons. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 the adoption of children and it says in Romans the ninth chapter the adoption. Now don't build anything upon those distinctions for they're only the attempts of the authorised version to expand the meaning of the word. It's exactly the same in each case. Just the word adoption. The next thing is to remember uh, that the word is built up of two words and so doesn't mean to be born into a family. It means to be appointed in some position in the family. The Greek word wyotesia, wyos, is the usual word for a son, to be distinguished from a word which means a child. That's a very, very great mistake to put in Ephesians, the adoption of children. Because the Apostle Paul makes a great difference between children and sons. And we must value this high calling, which doesn't merely make us a member of the family in general, but makes us one of the sons in particular. Why Odessia? To be placed in the position <coughs> of a son. Now we may say that sounds strange. You can't place anybody in position of a son. He either is or is not. But that's speaking from our modern point of view. But if you go back even to the Old Testament times, long before the operation of Roman and Greek law, which we find is here in operation, the book of Genesis records in the 10th chapter the names of 70 nations. And the book of Exodus, which comes afterwards, declares that a nation that was not then known in Genesis 10 were God's firstborn. Now, did God make a mistake? Did he forget the 70? No. He said, Israel is my firstborn. Not because they were first on the list, but because of the first in his choice. Or again, Jacob had twelve sons, and Reuben was the first one to be born. But he didn't get the coat of many colours, and he didn't get the double portion that Joseph had, although Joseph was a long way down the list. So you see, even in Old Testament times it was recognised that it was one thing to be born into a family, and it was another thing to be invested with the dignity and the rights that go with a first born. We haven't got that in our social makeup today. There's nothing very much distinctive in being the firstborn of a family or the last. In fact, the last sometimes comes off best. I was the first in the family. And it meant to say that I've got so many jobs to do that the others never did because I happen to be two or three years older. But you see, no coat of many colours. No double portion. Oh no. So we must remember when we are dealing with a word like this not to invest it with any ideas of our own. And that is particularly true with regard to this word adoption. You see, when you speak about adoption today the mind immediately thinks about some poor little wasteful stray that has been taken into a family 
And yet that's not a representation of our calling. I was awake and stray right enough. But I have chapter and verse which declares that I am a child of God. And that he is my father. And on top of that, and over about that, there is this distinctive adoption. So that I think, before we go any further, we must turn back to Galatians 3, which we read just now, because that is practically the primer on this subject. <coughs> you will notice that it starts with words that are suggestive. Verse 15, chapter 3. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. And you'll discover that once now and again, the Apostle introduces a phrase like that. And the reason is this. If he was speaking to Hebrew believers, all that he had to do was to quote some Old Testament scripture, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, and that's the end of the argument. But he's speaking to those who once were pagans, who had a very limited knowledge of Old Testament scripture. So, instead of quoting somewhere in the Old Testament, he refers them to their own manners and customs. He says, you have a custom, you have a law, which is in operation in Galatia, which has to do with the making of a will. And he says, I'm going to remind you of one feature in it, which is very distinctive. Don't be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannul it or add it thereto. <laughs> now we are very much indebted to the labours and researches <coughs> of Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey went out to Asia Minor as an archaeologist some years ago, but also as a modernist with very little room for the inspiration of Scripture. But there on the spot, with it, by his own researches, he convinced himself that the Word of God was true from the beginning. That's splendid, isn't it? And he unearthed sufficient evidence to show us what the Apostle was dealing, speaking about when he was dealing with this adoption to the Galatian church. And this is what he says. I'm, I'm going to just quote a little part of it. Such irre irrevocability, that is the, the expression, no man disadvantaged or added, it is irrevocable, was a characteristic feature of Greek law, according to which an heir outside the family must be adopted into the family, and the adoption was the will-making. The testator, after adopting his heir, could not subsequently take away from him his share of the inheritance, or impose new conditions on his succession. The Roman Syrian law book would illustrate this passage of the epistle. It actually lays down the principle that a man can never put away an adopted son, and that he cannot put away a real son without good ground. You notice that? The adopted son has got a greater claim than the real son. It is remarkable that the adopted son should have a stronger position than the son by birth, yet it is so. <laughs> the expression in Galatians 3.15, when it hath been confirmed, must also be observed. Every will had to be passed through the record office of the city. It was not regarded in the Greek law as a purely private document. It must be deposited in the record office. And inasmuch as once it was put into the office, 
and accepted, it couldn't be altered. It differs from the modern will. If you've made your will, I don't know whether you've got any property to leave, but if you've got the slightest amount, I think it's your duty as a Christian to make your will, otherwise you'll cause a good deal of trouble unnecessarily. Yet you could alter that will. You can go to your solicitor and you can put a codicil, or you can scrap the lot and start again. But you couldn't do that in Galatia. That was a serious element. And that's what the Apostle sees it. Now, why has he taken this line? When he says, friends, look, you're being badgered into the idea of the law of Moses having its grip upon you. You're being put under law. But he said, look, look, <coughs> the promise that God made to Abraham which is the basis of the gospel that he preached to them, 430 years before Mount Sinai, that cannot be altered any more than your will can be altered by anything that comes in afterwards. If you were appointed to be the firstborn, even though you turned out a bit of a rascal, that still stood. And even though the people of Israel turned out to be failures and rebels, that promise still stands. That promise to Abraham was unconditional. There was no mediator there. A mediator is not a mediator of one party, but of two, there was no other party. So God's going to keep his word with regard to his promise, and he'll deal with the question of failure under the law in his own glorious way. So don't you see what a power he got over these people when he reminded them? He said, you mean to tell me that you Galatians can make a will which nothing can alter, and then you turn around and say, God cannot do it? That's his argument. Well, now we could pursue that, of course, a good deal further, but we've got much more to say this evening. Let's look a little bit further down <coughs> this chapter. So in verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. <coughs> but that after the faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Well, that's not quite the meaning of the term. This is the word pedagogue, and you'll find it lifted out a little bit more conveniently in chapter 4 1. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors. The pedagogue was a slave in the Roman family, a very trusted slave, who had the supervision of the young child. He wasn't allowed to go out alone. All his affairs were under control. If he had money that was devoted to his upbringing, this pedagogue saw to it. But the moment that child reached its majority, it may be 21, it may have been any other date, according to the will of the father, then the pedagogue ceased. And the child then entered into his inheritance, became a full-fledged man, and managed his own affairs. He said, that's what I'm trying to tell you, Galatians. You're no longer under the elements of the law. The law's finished. It's done its work. What was its work? To save you? No. He says in verse 21, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Verily righteousness should have been by the law. So it did its work by leading you to feel your need of Christ, then stepping back and leaving you 
with Christ alone. He said, that's my gospel. No mixture of law and grace. No pedagogue mixing up with the full uh, grown son of God. But left in all its glorious simplicity. And then, I always feel it's worthwhile at the moment referring to verse 28, although most of you have had this all before. In the Jewish prayer book, used in the synagogue at every service, there is one set of petitions which I think throws a good deal of light upon the mentality of the Jew at that time. It reads like this. O Lord our God, King of the universe, I bless thee that I was not born a Gentile. O Lord our God, King of the universe, I bless thee that I was not born a slave. O Lord our God, King of the universe, I bless thee that I was not born a woman. Now if you have a boy, age 12, starting to say that and says that right through his life, that's going to colour all his view, isn't it? What a difference Christianity has made to the status of a woman then. Let us be glad for even that movement. But don't you see, he cancels all that. He says, oh no, this is in a new atmosphere altogether. These distinctions, which once obtained under the elements of the law, they're gone under the glorious gospel of grace. Chapter 4, he says, now I grant you that as long as this heir to all this property of this state is a child, well, he doesn't seem to differ anything from a servant. He's got tutors and governors that tell him what to do and perhaps correct him if he doesn't. Until the time appointed of the father. And that word father doesn't refer to God. That refers to the child's own father. Now he says, even we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth not another law of Mount Sinai. Oh no, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. That double reference, I think, was because he had both Jew and Gentile in mind. The Gentile was never under the law. The Jew was. But whether you're Jew or Gentile, you can go back to Genesis 3 and the promise to the woman's seed to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption, the placing in this glorious position as the recognised heir and firstborn. And because ye are sons, you see, there's no doubt about whether you're children or not, not waste and strains, because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That expression occurs only three times in the New Testament. Once from the lips of Christ himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, once in the Epistle to the Romans, once here. It was a sacred word, and the rabbinical rule would not permit anyone to use the word Abba unless he was a free person. A slave was not permitted to use it. That's all in keeping it. Well now, that's as far as I think we could go with regard to the actual meaning of the word adoption. The next thing I want to do is to show how this adoption throws a certain amount of light upon the different spheres of blessing that we have already perceived. Quite apart from this key, this word adoption, I think most of us in this little meeting are already aware that this earth 
is going to be a, a blessed place one day. This earth is going to be populated by a people to be blessed in the earth. And the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to such. The meek shall inherit the earth. And then we also know that there was a heavenly calling down to Abraham. Because we are told he was willing to be a tent dweller because he looked for a heavenly country and a heavenly city. So that's another sphere of blessing. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 1 and we've already had before us a new sphere blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God far above all principality and power well, that's infinitely higher than the New Jerusalem. So, at least, we can see in the scriptures three spheres of inheritance. Three spheres of blessing. Well now, if we're right in the, our approach to scripture, we shall discover that all sorts of other scriptures will confirm it. And if we are wrong, we shall discover ourselves wishing we hadn't read a certain verse because it's a bit awkward. Now then, what about this word adoption? If we discover the way in which this word is used, the passages where we find it, the people to whom it belongs, I think we should discover that it points out most definitely three spheres of blessing. Well, if that's the case, it will be a valuable confirmation to what we have already tried to teach. So we're going first of all now to the bottom sphere, Romans the ninth chapter. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Notice that he's very precise. This isn't a spiritual Israel that some people speak about. This was his own fleshly relatives, Israel according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. The very first thing that he puts down as a part of their distinctive characteristic is this word adoption. To this people pertain the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh. So you notice, we're in the realm of the flesh at the beginning and at the end. Not spiritual. In the realm of the flesh. Israel according to the flesh have the adoption. And from Israel according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Well now that is recorded there as Israel's distinctive blessing. There's no possibility of intruding a Gentile into this lot. Unless you are a kinsman of the apostle, according to the flesh, you have to stand back. To this people pertain the covenants. No covenants are made with you and with me today. In fact, Ephesians tells us that the ones to whom that glorious message is addressed, that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope, no fathers. 
no blessings promised to them in that sense. So here we have one people, a distinctive people, the people of Israel, and they're given the firstborn's position. And you remember I've already reminded you that when Moses went into Pharaoh, according to the record in Exodus, God said, let my firstborn go. And he threatened Pharaoh that if he didn't let his firstborn go, God said, I will touch your firstborn. And you know, he did ultimately. Firstborn. Well, now we come to Galatians 3 and 4 again, just to get another link. We are very conscious when we read the uh, closing words of Galatians 4, that we're not dealing with Israel according to the flesh. The apostle will have no room for the flesh in Galatians. Look what he says at the beginning of this same chapter 3. All foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This is a very incisive piece of wording here. The word evidently set forth, you'd hardly believe it, literally means to placard. And there may be some person who says, oh no, you can't tell me they used to have placards. They did, friends. And some of them have been preserved and are in the museums still. One says, vote for so-and-so. He's a good person. Fancy that. Well, said the Apostle, I placarded Jesus Christ as him crucified. I made it so vivid that you couldn't have missed it. What's happened to you? And then he says to them, This only would I learn of you. Receive Jesus' spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? That's what he's going to deal with the flesh now. Oh, he says in chapter 5, the works of the flesh are these are the terrible lists in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. See, he won't have the flesh have any place in this teaching in Galatians. So if someone coming to Galatians to find out what Israel, according to the flesh, will have, but they're ruled out. The last chapter says, verse 15, that in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's the only thing that matters now. So you see, we're on different ground. And at the end of chapter 4, he says, If ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Well, as this is not in the realm of the flesh, this is where there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, we're on a new platform. Where is it? Well, isn't it good to, to find that in chapter 4, it gives you a hint. Verse 26. But Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. That's the first hint in the New Testament that there was a Jerusalem anywhere else except in Palestine. Abraham knew it. But it's not written in Genesis. It's not written anywhere until we come to Hebrews. And the only hint that we get that there was a heavenly Jerusalem is this passing reference in Galatians 4. But it's good enough. You see, it's keeping pace. Israel, according to the flesh, had their central city, Jerusalem. Now, 
this company, who are still Abraham's seed, belonging to the heavenly calling, they have their city. But it's not Jerusalem on the earth, it's the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And for that, you know as well as I do, we turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12. First of all, in chapter 11, says in verse 9, speaking of Abraham, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. Notice the word sojourned. Not dwelt. Not as a freeholder. Not as a settler. He was one passing through. He sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, although it was given to him. Dwelling in tabernacles. Now that's a bit too rich. When we say tabernacles today, we rather think of a marvellous piece of embroidery and gold and wonderful colouring. This is simply the word for a tent. Just a word for a tent. A slight booth in which to dwell temporarily. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now it tells you why. Uh, uh, I can't help it, I say, why they were content to dwell in tents. For he looked for a city which hath the foundations whose builder and maker is God. And it's further described in verse 14. Because they became strangers and pilgrims on the earth, then they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. How true that is to life. If you want an opportunity to break the word of God and do, do your own will, you'll find arguments all around you telling you it's the right thing. They would have done too. But now, I see, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly. A heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So there's a heavenly country. Now in chapter 12, we find Mount Sinai contrasted with Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. It says in verse 18, chapter 12, For ye are not come unto the mouth that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they have heard entreated that the word should not be spoken of them anymore. This is the terrible atmosphere of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But he says in contrast to that, ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now if we'd have pursued our reading in Galatians chapter 4, we should have discovered, as you, you well know, that the Apostle says, I'm going to allegorize the teaching of the Old Testament. He said, Abraham had two sons, the one, the mother was a free woman, the other, the mother was a bond slave, and they represent the two classes, the one that's in bondage and the one that's free. So he sets over against Sinai, Mount Zion, in chapter 4. He does it again here. And there are those, and I agree with them, who believe that the epistle to the Galatians was the covering letter sent together with the epistle to the Hebrews to the same company. 
But the Galatians was addressed to the Gentile and in the commandment particularly, and the Hebrew section was addressed to the Hebrews for their marching together. And there's any amount of parallels when once you start searching for them. But that's only by the way. Here we now come to Mount Zion. It says, but ye are come to Mount Zion, verse 22, and out of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we're not left in doubt. And to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Now that's the word we've got to stop over. This is not exactly the same as the word Wyothesia, which is the word translated adoption, but it means much the same thing. The adoption was the title, the office, the prerogatives, the position of the firstborn in the family. Israel is my firstborn. To then pertain the adoption. Mm-hmm. Say it which way you like. So now we have a firstborn in heaven. That's the second sphere. Well now we move up one more and we come to Ephesians chapter 1 where we've been from which we started just now and here we have most certainly a people that are not in the Apostle Paul's brethren according to the flesh. We know that by reading chapter 2. And may I ask you just to refresh your memory of Romans 9 now. He says, look, you, my brethren according to the flesh, you have all these prerogatives, adoption, covenant, promises, Christ. But he says, you Ephesians, you're not my brethren according to the flesh, and you have none of these prerogatives. Let's see how chapter 2, verse 12, 11 and 12, is an exact contradiction to the position indicated in Romans 9. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Do you notice? When he spoke to Israel in the flesh, it was an honour. When he tells these Gentiles that they were in the flesh, well, that was hopeless. We're on entirely different ground. The Israelite had a place given to him by God in the flesh, and you and I have no place whatever from God in the flesh. We've got to die to that and be delivered from it before we can ever get blessings and spiritual spheres. So is it? Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ. Now this is looking back to Romans 9. He said, and to you, my brethren, according to the flesh, from you Christ came. These Ephesians had no promises made that ever from them should come the Messiah and Saviour of the world, but Israel did. It was the great thought that was burning through their prophecies and entered in the minds and thoughts of any amount of them that from their own family might at least bear possibility come him who is the, to be destined to be the Saviour of Israel and the world. But no such thing was written for the Gentile. That at that time you were without a Christ, being aliens, from the citizenship. This word commonwealth is the word citizenship. There's only another way of saying it. Citizenship. 
You have no place in that city. It belonged to them. Aliens from the citizenship of Israel. If you're ever going to have a citizenship, he said, it'll have to be another one. To face that and realize that would make you hesitate to believe, as some would have you believe, that all that we've done is to inherit what Israel lost. Once we didn't have it, now we have. Oh no, this is something different. He said also at that time you were strangers from the covenants of promise. They weren't made to you. You were outsiders. Having no hope. Well, if you've got no citizenship and no covenants and no promises and no Christ, well, you are in that position. No hope. And without God, chapter, the first part says, without Christ. The last part says, without God. The first part says, in the flesh. And the last part says, in the world. Well, that about damns the lot, doesn't it? In the flesh. In the world. Without Christ and without God. Can there be a more definite contrast between the position of Israel as given in Romans 9 and the addressings of this teaching in Ephesians? So you see, we are not resting on any promises made to our fathers, any covenants that have been entered into by anybody. Either we are completely accepted in Christ or we've got no claim at all. We can do nothing, we can promise nothing, we can look for nothing, but we don't need to, friends. For in this glorious calling, Christ is all, and in all. But we're not dealing with that aspect particularly now. But you do notice the this change. Verse 13, but now. Oh, what a contrast. Remember that in time past you were this, but now. Oh, what a difference. In Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And so he goes on. But that is a subject for our consideration later. Well now we have then, had sketched out before us, three distinct groups of people. Israel according to the flesh, the seed of Abraham in spirit, and these, who were complete outsiders, but now brought into blessing since Israel was set aside. So we have three spheres of blessing, most certainly. The earth, the new Jerusalem, and the position far above all. And in each one of those spheres, there are those who have the adoption. Of course, if you, first of all, said it quickly, you may say, well, there's something wrong here. Can a, can a person have three firstborn sons? You might say no. And then you would say, oh, yes, well, oh, remember, Mr. So-and-so, he was married the second time and he had another family, so he had two firstborn sons. So yes, and God's got three families. In every family in heaven and earth are named with the name of Christ. The family on earth, the family in the New Jerusalem, the family at the right hand. And in each one of those families, there's one group being predestinated to the adoption, the firstborn's position. So now we want to see the groups. Israel was the first of the nations. 
of the nations of the earth. And then God said to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. And so we have the people of Israel, the adoption given to them, and the nations of the earth subservient to them. Do you remember when the prophet is looking down the age and sees this people in their position? He said, Israel are going to be a priests and kings, and the Gentiles are going to be their plowmen and their servants. Oh yes, it's no good being first if there's no one second, is there? We've had it all before about the boy who came home and told his father that he'd come in second in some sort of examination. And the father's hand went to his pocket to take out a coin, but he said, how many were sitting for the exam? My boy said, only two, father. You see, here's, here's a position which is not merely a cipher. When Israel enter into their adoption and take their place as the firstborn in that family on the earth, all the other nations will be subservient then. They'll go up to Jerusalem to learn the law. They themselves say, these are the ministers of our God. These are the people who have the light and the truth. That's what's going to be on the earth. Or when we come to the New Jerusalem, well, there are no nations up there. But you know what you did read, do you remember? We have come to an innumerable company of angels in the church of the firstborn. Yes? No, ye not, said Paul, during that period, that the saints should judge angels. Angels. So, on the earth, nations, in a lesser degree of blessing, than the nation. In the heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn, and angels, in relation to them. And when we come to our calling, when we reach the position far above all, what do I have to say when I go on? Does I fall above all angels? No. Angels are not mentioned. When I come to my position and yours, this is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, these are all titled people. So you see, in each sphere, there's a great company and one has a particular preeminence on the earth, in the heavenly Jerusalem, and far above all. Hence in the church of the one body, made up of folk like you and me, daring to believe that we shall be far above principality and power. Well, it's just the same as Israel, daring to believe they're going to be far above Englishmen, Irishmen, Scotchmen, and all the rest of us. It's all going to come. It's all there. Well, there is one more thing, and that is this, that associated with this element of the three different spheres, there will be three aspects of that which we call, by a convenient term, the second coming of Christ. It's the same Christ, whether you are looking for him as a member of the body, whether you are looking for him as one that is to walk the streets of the New Jerusalem, or whether you are looking for him for his feet to stand upon the Mount of Olives. It's the same Christ. But the differences of calling are reflected in the differences which go to speak about that second coming. On the earth, we have the great chapter, Matthew 24, the coming of Christ in relation to the earth, relation to all nations, 
and the fulfillment of the promises made in Old Testament times, are particularly a reference to the days prophesied by Daniel, they're all embedded in Matthew 24. But when we come to the heavenly side of this calling, we have the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, the trump of God. We get the second coming of Christ in that aspect, and they meet the Lord in the air. There is no statement that they're going to be taken back to the earth. It doesn't definitely say they're going to be taken to the New Jerusalem, but they belong to the second calling, and that seems to be connected with that phase. And then we have no coming referred to in Ephesians or Colossians. Instead of coming, we have this, that when Christ stands up in glory, because the moment has come for the second coming to take place, when he is manifested, we shall be manifested with him. Not even waiting on the earth for him. Not even meeting him in the air. And then somebody says, well, how are we going to get there? Well, how do I know, friend? How does any one of us know? Isn't that in the hands of God? Blessedly so. So we've got him. We have the parousia and the apocalypse and the epiphanite. Three words. The parousia is used in Matthew, it's used in the early epistles of Paul, it's used in James and Peter and John. But it's never used in Ephesians or Colossians. But Ephesians and Colossians, or Colossians particularly, and Titus, which belongs to the same group, lifts out the other word, the epiphanite, the manifestation in glory. So it seems that the more we get the truth, the more other scriptures march up and take their lives. We believe there are three spheres of blessing. We've got three different companies who have the adoption. And then we discover that there are three different phases of that which we call, in general terms, the second coming. Now, on this chart which we have exhibited here, you'll see at the bottom a very rough illustration. It was put on afterwards. Not done very well. Cut out and stuck on quickly. But it's supposed to represent Westminster Abbey a grandstand and a crowd of people standing on the curb. It is the coronation of the queen or the marriage of the king's son or something like that. And it was only done to illustrate this threefold uh, uh, sort of arrangement in connection with this coming of Christ and the three spheres. It's all one coronation. Suppose we keep to the idea of a coronation. It's only one coronation. But is there no difference between the right to go right up the aisle in Westminster Abbey and be there at the coronation itself? Is there no difference between that and having a stand that costs ten guineas just outside or not even having a stand outside but waiting on the curb all night and all day in order to get a glimpse? Don't you see the difference, friends? The Church of the One Body Hasn't got a wait for the Lord to come. They're going to be manifested with him in glory when he is manifested. And they're going to be there far above the dukes and the earls and the barons. They're far above all principality. They're right there at the very right hand of the king in Westminster Abbey itself. But then there's another group 
They're not so highly favoured as to go right into the Abbey, but they have a seat in a stand which has got decorations on it and velvet and so on and a canopy over their head. And then there's another group. They line the route. They stand and wait. But it's all the same key. But there's a difference between standing on the curb and having a seat in the stand or having a right to go right into the abbey and be there at the actual coronation itself. Well, that's a very crude illustration of what we may say is the association of the three spheres of blessing with three aspects of the second coming. Well, I think that's about as far as we can go this evening in connection with this aspect, that before we have the recording take, uh, take off, there's just one little thing that I want to add, and it might as well go on now. You know this, this is a Bible. Uh, it's like a piece of papyrus, isn't it? Well, it's an old warrior. I pensioned it off three years ago. Forty-seven years that Bible has been faithfully serving me until you can hardly breathe without blowing it to pieces. But the reason why I'm mentioning that is that by glimpsing at the uh, flyleaf, I suddenly reminded myself of something. I became the General Secretary of the Bible Training College that was functioning in London at that time in 1904. This is 1954. I'm asking you to join with me in celebrating a jubilee. This Bible's been in my possession for that 50 years. And then, oh, what shocking people we are, friends, this type of it. There was another jubilee that I'd forgotten. In that self-same year, I not only stepped out from ordinary daily business and became associated with the ministry of the God's Word, but I also became engaged to be married. So there's another jubilee. And I'm so glad tonight to put those two together. They're not accidental. I do hope and trust that if the wife I had had bullied me and nagged me and opposed me, I do hope I would have persisted in the truth entrusted to thee, but what a sour business it would have been. And I have a feeling I should have been dead by now. So I'm glad tonight to ask you to share with me in just rejoicing, if you can, in a double jubilee, a jubilee 50 years ministry of the word of the living God and 50 years faithful and loyal and loving fellowship about which, as the scripture says, I cannot speak particularly, but I think you understand. I haven't been married 50 years, but we started together then, and every step of the way has been a matter of consultation and agreement and sharing. So I'm very glad to be able to ask you, even though I left it almost to the last minute of this year, to rejoice with me in a double jubilee.